everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Felt the great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Do you remember the time we were here and we saw all those butterflies? Oh, yeah, that was really cool. Where do you think they were all going? Probably the Grand Canyon. That's where I would go if I could fly. Mm. <laughs> Welcome to Everything Old is New Again. A little sublime beginning to our show this week. I'm here, Douglas Viviani, with the infinite David Cohen. That's right. I'm calling you infinite because, because that's a clip from the, the show. show Forever. So it's sort of infinite, yes. right? Yes. Forever is infinite, so it, it works. Ap- apropos. Thank you. And we are back another week with Dr. Peter Weller. You know him from RoboCop, 24, Sons of Anarchy, Star Trek Into Darkness, just to mention a few. We're going to talk all things pop culture, dive into Libya, a little bit of uh, discussion about ancient uh, art, uh, renaissance. We have so much uh, to uh, talk about. It's on our plate. And David Cohen, what do you think? Are we enjoying ourselves? Oh, of course. Always a pleasure to have Dr. Weller on. Always. Well, you know what? That's part of the fun. Also, you know, we talked, we've talked about comedians in the past on our show and how that's changed a little bit. We talk about Chris Rock. Now, uh, Don Rickles back in the day was laughed at and brought about all of these, you know, stereotypes uh, to the table and so forth. But it was kind of taken, I'm going to say, David, you know, but a little more tongue in cheek. And it opened the door to you can have discussions with people, have opposite points of view. And have a smile on your face and accept the the other person's point of view. And again, have, maybe have an open mind to see what they say. And maybe they hopefully have an open mind to see what you say. And you can have some commonality even if you don't agree on everything. But I think some of that is lost now. The comedians can't really even go just as a, as a uh, what would you say, as a symptom of this. The comedians can't even go down those, those roads anymore. No, uh, you, 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 know, you can do it on stage, but you can't do it on the social media. You can't do it. I mean, Roseanne Barr. It was not only Nichols, I mean uh, uh, Don Rickles. But also Jackie Vernon did that. Sure. There's a couple guys that, like, like, who could stand up and trash a particular idiom. And, um, you know, insult it, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And, uh, and, and people would laugh. I mean, I got to say, man, as much as a cliche, that's why I like the movie Ted. Because, <laughs> uh, because it was just so irreverent. Seth MacFarlane right. in the first five minutes, I mean, he unilaterally trashes Christians, Muslims, Jews. Like in six minutes. Right. They're done. I I brought my son. That was his first R-rated movie, (laughs) and I brought him to it. Not, I, I mean, I'd heard advanced word about it, but until you actually sit down and see the movie, you don't really know how bad it, and bad meaning in a good way, but just foul and, and you know, just, just off the charts it is. But I was just happy that there was irreverence there because it's right. like, and by the way, it all, it all said and done. And, you know, I mean, like there was a thing that came out with George Will about the, how essentially attacking the political correctness, you know, the idea of political correctness, particularly in a, in a school zone. Okay, so my, I went to school, my PhD is with some of the major feminists. I mean, these are classicists, Amy Richland, art historians, uh, uh, Charlene Villasenor Black, but they're also very famous feminists. They're feminists look at the particular field of expertise. And, you know, I shared that, what do you think of this with Charlene? And she said, you know, Peter, you know, 
I, I get it that maybe the pendulum, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, is like feels like it's swung about being politically correct way over there, but you've got to remember that like, even in the liberation of the second wave of feminism in the 70s, 80s, where we thought it was better, it wasn't better. And right up into the 90s, uh, you know, people of color and women and so forth could be, uh, gender could still be denigrated. It's so I get it that that people are walking on eggshells. I really get her point that, uh, you know, people have had to walk on eggshells recently only to make sure that there is uh, an indemnification of rights, you know, for marginalized people. At the same time, I need the sense of humor. Right. <laughs> you know, at the same time, I want to rid the world of, like, the racist gender bullies, you know, and, like, call them out. I also need the sense of humor, man. I need the sense of humor. No, we need to lighten because up otherwise... Yeah, you need to lighten up a little bit. Otherwise, it's all serious. And you see, it like, takes you down a road sometimes that you, you can't get out of. You can't smile. You can't joke you around. Can't smile. And it's, 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 you know what it's we need? Bad way. And it'll never happen. But we need all in the family again. Right, we, we, need, we need that show. Oh, again. We need Archie Bunker. No, there's no way. Douglas, that, I mean, all in the family. I mean, that's like, that show is, like, I look back at that as genius. Genius, yep. genius, genius. But it, it's sad, but right. It wouldn't. It, it, no one would even think of bringing up that concept, let alone getting it made. I mean, you'd right. just be laughed out of town. But it's sad because yeah. you know there were there were you know as as you know Peter back then when it first aired, uh, very tumultuous times, and it was almost like a, just a mouthpiece for. You know, what was happening back then. And both sides of the argument, they were both sides were represented and no no punches were pulled. And it was an honest representation. And I think it was just great if you look back on some of the more, you know, um, you know, more, I guess, more confrontational type episodes that happened uh, between Archie and whoever, <laughs> whoever was on the other side of the argument. Um, some of the arguments were just so profound and still, I think, today and, apply. And were recreated in some ways in the living room. But with a smile, and you, you get what I'm saying. Like it wasn't right. life and death that you disagree with me, as it appears to be in our present culture. You know, and that's uh, yeah. a little dangerous. Uh, speaking yeah. of, of let's, yeah. let's 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 uh, I'm arguing yeah. back to something, guys. I just want to argue back and give credit sure. credit to because I always talk about her. But the person who got me to go to Italy, the person who's inspiration for my PhD, is one of the great and beautiful Ali McGraw. And most people remember Ali McGraw only as a movie star of like the '60s and '70s and so forth, but. When I was hanging with Allie, <coughs> you know, um, I did a movie with her, and after the movie with Sidney Lamette, we started hanging out. And she's still one of my dearest friends, and I thanked her on my academic page of uh, my PhD, not the, not the personal acknowledgement, the academic page, because uh, she, you know, was finishing a master's degree at Wellesley in design. She's an artist. She was taken by Diana Vreeland, the stylist at Vogue. She was the girl of the year, like Sylvia Plath had been, where Diana Vreeland would groom someone to be an absolute cultural style uh, design stylist of a major m magazine, and that's what Allie did long before she was the stylist for Sokolsky, famous photographers before she ever became an actress or a model. And so she's one of the most sophisticated, bright women ever. So when I started hanging out with her in the late 70s, you know, this is the second advent of feminism. And the second advent of feminism, what they mean is the first, the first move of feminism and, 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 you know, gender reaction is in the 60s, of course. But by the late 70s, you know, fem feminism is infuse itself into the humanities and the college and the universities and the film and the writing and so forth. Okay. So Allie is like, I mean, I felt like the end of a train. 
I, I've talked about the, the caboose of the trade because I'm going out with her, man. And here's who we're hanging out with. We're hanging out with like artists, writers, uh, feminists, uh, politicos. Every night there's a soiree, man. I mean, I got to meet the likes of everyone from Norman Mailer to Truman Capote with her. I just where I met Gore Vidal. So, you know, uh, Rauschenberg, uh, Stella, uh, I mean, Alvin Ailey, Martha Graham. You, 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 you follow me? We go to the Met Ball. She knows these people. And this is her ilk. So we go to this like book signing thing for Erica Jong. And Erica Jong, arguably one of the first like fiction second wave feminist writers ever. Okay, standing I'm a product of the sixties. I feel like the odd man out. I mean, these are heroes to me, but I, what do I say to them? Right. What do I say to Martha Graham when I'm sitting next to her? I've done your technique for eight years. <laughs> Jeemus Graham, you know? Like, uh, what do I say to Alvin Ailey? You know, I mean, this is like Leonard Bernstein. I mean, for crying out loud, this is like, I'm swamped. I call my mother. She says, how's things? Hanging out with Ali. I said, I feel like, that, I feel like a pair of brown shoes, Mom. I feel like, like at the caboose at the end of the train every night we're with people who are of the literati, glirati of Manhattan, and I don't know what to say. So you know what my mom says? Well, don't say anything. Just shut up and listen. <laughs> so, so I did. I shut up. We're at this Eric Jong thing. Now, this would not go down today, but I just remember it of, a, of an ilk. They're in a corner with dressed in black, and she's sexy, by the way, and you wouldn't endow her with what the you know, modern American idea of sexy is, but she's sexy. It's Betty Friedan. And Betty Friedan is all in black in some Givenchy suit looking really, with two other women all in black. <laughs> you know, and this is 1979. I said, look, I read The Feminine Mystique. I, that's one of the first feminist books I ever read. And I, do I say anything to her? What am I going to say? I like your book. You know, I, I'm so out of my element here, man. So this is a key, a key event for me. I walk up to her. Allie's over in a corner talking to, I don't know, George Plimpton or somebody. And I, I, I walk up and say, Miss Fernand, yes. I said, my name is Peter Weller. I'm, a, I'm an actor. Yeah, I've done two movies. And she's a member of the theater. She says, yes. I said, I want you to know, I'm also a product of the 60s and with a great mom. And I read your book. I read The Feminine Mystique. And it made a, a, you know, an indelible impression upon me about the rights of women. That's all I have to say. And she's staring at me. And her friend turns to her and says, give me your hotel key. <laughs> and you know what she says? She looks at me and says, you want it now or later? Oh, no. Is that cool? <laughs> wow. And on that note, we'll be back right after this on Everything Old is New Again with Dr. Peter Weller talking all things pop culture. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. This is Terrence Winter, writer and executive producer of The Sopranos, creator and executive producer of Boardwalk Empire and The New Vinyl on HBO. And you're listening to my friends Douglas Viviani and David Cohen on Everything Old is New Again. Uh, welcome back to Everything Old is New Again. This is Douglas Viviani with David Cohen, and we are here with one of our favorite guests of all time, Dr. Peter Weller, you know him from RoboCop, Sons of Anarchy, Enterprise, so much more, and we're continuing discussion. I'm going to turn the tide here a little bit and talk about an episode of Fringe. Just to play a quick clip from a, an episode that you played uh, in Fringe, but I have an in interesting question, I think, developed from this character. If we could follow this, uh, give me two seconds. Walter, God is science. God is 
polio and flu vaccines and MRI machines and artificial hearts. If you're a man of science, then that's the only faith we need. Now bear with me on this. Uh, this is an episode where uh, Dr. Yeah. Paul Weller is paying a, a scientist and he's time traveling. And, uh, and, and there's some questionable things that happen as a result of his, his traveling through time and, and uh, can be seen as an evil person. But um, in this particular scene, you hear he's speaking with, the, with Walter Bishop, who's uh, questioning God in, 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 in the existence of God. And now... It's there's a dichotomy here because this character, Doctor Wells' character, is saying all there is is science. But meanwhile, later on in the episode, this uh, Peter Bishop prayed to God and said, "If there's a God, show me a white tulip in." Uh, in the winter, in which there's no such thing. Uh, but meanwhile, the character that says there's only science mailed or made it available at a later time that a white uh, rose, a picture of a white, I'm sorry, tulip, was delivered to this, uh, this gentleman. And the question is to Walter Bishop, um, that then... We believe gives this character a belief that there is a god. So, to me, there's a dichotomy there. I don't know if you do- dove into that in that much detail or not about this character, but um, am I on the mark, or is am I totally missing something with respect to what this character did? And by, and by the way, if he did do that, is this character have then some redeeming value? Was he even evil to begin with? No, my character is totally redeeming. Right. My character is an inspiration. My character is an angel to him. Right. But what, what's the quote with respect to science and there's only science and then proceeds to present uh, a, a tool for uh, Peter Bishop to, to uh, have a uh, belief in God? Well, for Walter Bishop, you mean, I mean Walter, the, the yes, father. Yes, sorry. This is so powerful, man. This right. is why my wife, I told you why my wife convinced me to do it, right? Yes. Yeah, because, you know, we'd had a fight over, over uh, registering. And she had pulled this thing out. She pulled the script out of the... My wife pulled the script out of the trash can. Right. I'd never read it. And she's crying. And I come back. She's home from prepping for my oral exams. And she says... I said, what are you crying? Reading television. She said, and crying. She says, you got to do this. you got to do this. you got to read it. You can't believe it. It's all that stuff you love. It's about God and science. But it's about us. It's about us. I go, come on, man. This is about <laughs> corny as you can get. And I read this thing, man, and I'm crying at the end of it because you find out at the end the guy didn't really want to go back and save his life. That's what Walter Bishop's trying to convince him not to do. Right. You can't do that. You know, my son is from an alternate universe. I try to, like, make peace with this alternate universe, but you can't, I, you can't ever really, you know, you can't change the alternate universe. You can't, you can't go back and change that. And you find out that, that I'm not trying to change it. I'm trying to go back and die with right. it. Right? I, I start, and I, I wept when I did it. I call up. And uh, that's how I met JJ. He was like, <clears throat> loved it. And um, we're talking about parking lot. But that said, uh, when I read that thing, I go, oh my gosh. I don't think I'll ever get to do in one hour a, an encapsulation of the two things that as a novice, have it affected me most on planet Earth, which is what does progress say in the face of the spiritual experience? Um, what does our intuition and development in terms of the physical world say to the non-physical world? What does this great Zen quote is, who do you, who do you uh, uh, mourn for more? Who do you mourn for more? The man with no visible means of support or the man with no invisible means of support. 
and that's one of the great Zen adages ever. And, and, and so you've got Walter Bishop, you know, released from a, a, a nutty place, who's retrieved his son from an alternate universe, trying to solve these crimes. Uh, but he's trying to tell me that you cannot mess with science, that you are messing with uh, a thing that goes outside of time. Science happens within time. And I'm trying to tell him that it's all God. I'm trying to tell him that the Zen nature of it, that right. it's, you know, the physical Philip K. Dick thing, that it's all God. There's not a dual nature. The physical world is the uh, is the invisible world. So it's not God versus science. It's all it's all no. right. That's right. right. That's what Einstein was trying to say, man. Right. You know, I mean, like, like you know, the people like like that defended that were against cleaning the Sistine Chapel. No, let it go into entropy. You know, let it decay. I mean, it's not Michelangelo's not a colorist. But you got the great Leo Steinberg says, wait a minute, wait a minute. God wanted us to save this stuff, or else he wouldn't have brought us to the science that allows us to save it. Right. You know, you can't say that the hand of man, i.e. God, made the Sistine Chapel. Now we've got to let it decay back into natural oblivion, because God also gave us the facility to make this stuff up to save it. We'll but, 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 you know, but... But so that's the beauty of White Tulip to me, man. I read White Tulip and I thought, okay, I'm probably never going to get to say anything like this again. <laughs> I'm probably never going to represent my own life like this again with the fight with the fiance. I'm probably never going to get to have the dialogue about, you know, God and science ever again. And I got to do this episode, man. So it's one of the great. Uh, events ever to do that, man. It still follows you. And you, you segue there a little bit uh, to a discussion of this. I think you mentioned Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo. And uh, first, I want to confirm with you, of course, uh, uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Peter Weller, who has a PhD in uh, Renaissance art history. So we, we're asking the right person. And, and I'm speaking about Michelangelo and, and something that we can see in our minds while we're on the radio here, the Sistine Chapel. And, and he was upset. He, he said he does sculptures, not him, not a painter, I remember that, uh, and he was incensed that he even had to do this 5,700 square feet of ceiling. And in some, uh, the Old Testament, just to lay groundwork here, uh, provides a, a picture, if you will, of the creation of man. You know, that's the, if you're thinking of it now in your car or wherever you are, the famous fingers touching, that's what we're talking about here, and the, the right. fresco around that. Now, what is so important and memorable about this? And the fingers, um, to me, I see the fingers show the life force from the creator going to the creation. If you look at Adam, and you got to kind of look this up on the, the net, or next time you're there, think about this and look at Adam limp and lifeless on some parts of his body, and his face is blank, and even his finger has to be lifted by or rested upon his left knee, and he's sort of coming alive through the uh, touch, if you will, with the Creator. And is is that am I on the on the right mark here with this? And and if so, yeah. uh, what is that? What's the why everyone talks about this or give us a little sense of what's the importance of this of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, I'll give you the, 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 there's two things that influence him here, and uh, one is the Belvedere torso, and the other is uh, uh, the Lao Kuan. These are both marble statues that are in the, the Vatican right now that he sees. So look, here's the deal. I, this is like, uh, I got Alex O'Loughlin into this about a year ago, and it's right that you can study this ad infinitum. Okay, the, the, I, 
on my on my, let's back up a second on my bucket list there's a museum in Berlin that's under restoration called the Pergamum Museum Pergamum was the bank whereby Alexander the Great when he died in 326 left his three generals this is real short order Lysimachus uh, Ptolemy and uh, Seleucus a bank and they put it in a town called Pergamum with a, a, a guy named Philotyrus who was a eunuch uh, and become a eunuch in war and who essentially willed it onto his nephews and their descendants the Adeline, Adelus kings okay this bank grew and grew and grew and essentially this uh, became a whole sort of mini empire in itself never had a war only place that ever fought was the Gauls the Gauls raiding naked tribes coming in and marauding everywhere and what they did in Pergamum in the, from 290 say to 180 something like that or about 150 years they made these statues in the idea of classical Greece gotta remember the classical Greece in 400s they figure out the proportionate system of a man and a guy named Praxiteles another guy named Polyclitus write down a canon a canon meaning how do you draw the perfect face Right? What are the proportionate systems of the face, et cetera, et cetera? And you've got the perfect stance called ethos, the culture of man. Uh, right. Okay. Pergamum takes that ethos 100 years later and turns it into pathos because they start carving and making their enemies and war scenes and the twisting, turning, convoluted emotion, dying, agony, triumph of war and death. Got it? And we're going to take a break right now, right in the middle of this fascinating discussion with Dr. Peter Weller. We'll be back right after this on Everything Old is New Again. Everything old is new again, been on, and we're growing and growing in stations and all that. Do you feel uh, anything with regard to this particular show in terms of uh, your your experience that that we've um, uh, going to be successful? We're we're ending tomorrow or anything in between? No. And then we'll go into some predictions no. you have. I wouldn't. I would. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say anything like that. But I, I. I would say this because of this spark and the chemistry you both have. You've really touched on a, on a new idea. It's based on an old concept, but it's new and refreshing. And I. And I. Even if you change and detour along the way, I really think that you have something that's going to awaken in people a refreshing intrigue. People will want to hear more about it, especially which what you're doing now is adapting it. To to the present, because again, we can learn from the past and 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 apply it to the present. A perfect, I'll give you a perfect example in my my work. One of the big uh, now back to America's entertainment pop culture talk show. Everything old is new again with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Hi, this is Bob Breyer, and we're everything old is new again with David Cohen and Douglas Viviani. And we're back on Everything Old is New Again with Dr. Peter Weller, who, you know, from RoboCop and 24 and Sons of Anarchy, but also he's got a Ph.D. in Renaissance art history. So we're diving into that a little bit and talking about the Sistine Chapel and what is the significance thereof. We left off talking about its relationship to Pergamon statues. Now, you can look at the Dying Gaul, for instance. That's a Pergamon statue that the, of which there's no uh, there's no original the romans did a copy that's in the the capitoline museum they did the pergamum the altar of zeus 
in Pergamum is the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. And you've got to Google that, the, per, the altar of Zeus. They did the Lao Koan. That's the guy who said, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Google that now. You will see Lao Koan and his sons. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts, and subsequently Poseidon punishes him by sending sea snakes out and wrap them around him, right? And, and he dies. And he's dying, and that statue's in the Belvedere. Okay. That statue is uncovered in Nero's house while Michelangelo is painting the Sistine. They also find what's now called the Belvedere Torso. It could be Ajax, could be Achilles, could be anybody. Michelangelo is not a painter. I mean, he does paint the Donitono, but by his own admission, he's like a great draftsman. But he's a sculptor. So he's up there doing the drunkenness of Noah. He's going backwards in those books. He's going backwards with the drunkenness of Noah and the deluge and creation of Eve and so forth. And, you know, he's only got really one friend, Giuliano de Sangalo, who says, essentially, you know, you're trying to do single board perspective in space and all that. We're 65 feet down. Who's going to see all that stuff, man? You're so busy with that art up there, man. Also, he's using too much water in it. He's making all kinds of mistakes. Mm. Boom, he gets off the scaffold halfway down. They're excavating Nero's house, and they find the Lao Koan from Pergamum. If you look at a picture of that, you see the twisting, torture, agony, musculature, drama, action movie in the Lao Kuan, which is what Pergamum invented, that action movie. And the action movie, the first replication, the first invention of the action movie is in the altar to Zeus the Pergamum, of Pergamum in Berlin, which I'm not going to get to see mm. for another three years because they've been restoring it for the last ten. And I still ain't seen it. I see pictures of it. Michelangelo sees that. Sees the Lao Kuan. Look at the creation of Adam and the Lao Kuan. Look at the twist. He says, you know what? I'm going to pretend I'm Michelangelo for a second. He gets back up on the thing to do, the creation of Adam. And he also sees they uncovered a river god. And a river god is like antique Roman God to the rivers, and they're also based on the Pergamum idea of pathos. They're twisting, they're reclining, they're reaching out. And he goes, you know what, man? I'm not interested in space. I'm not interested in single-point perspective. I'm not interested in all this stuff invented by Masaccio in the last hundred years that they do over and over again. It's like Billy Freakin' with the greatest chase ever, and then we got ten years of chase movies, right, that lose the passion of Gene Hackman and the French Connection. We just got chase movies, man. And that's what all Renaissance has been doing, according to Michelangelo, for the last ten years, just doing the space stuff. I am interested in space as the vestige by which the torsion and tension of the feeling taken into the human body, what the human body in its twisting can portray to us, can give to us in terms of feeling. The heck with the background. And there you've got it, man. And it all comes from Pergamum, and it all translates into Michelangelo. And all of that goes into mannerism, Baroque, goes all the way into Poussin, the French school, you can go right up to, like, Steven Spielberg making, you know, what have you, man. So we're, you we're, saying, right what we're saying, though, here, and what we, we've asked the right person, of course, uh, what we're saying is that even Michelangelo, if he was around to this day, would agree that everything old is new again, because he... Uh, Absolutely, man! <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, man. I mean, he's looking at, like, second-century B.C. art, where art changed from elegance into feeling. Right. Right, right, right from ethos into pathos, and he makes it new again. Now we we 
It's amazing. You know, we did a, a, a show, a, a, you know, sort of a comedy show where we did where we had uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci visit our show a little ways back, and we joked around about it. And, and I just had a serious question for where it came from, though, is we played him off as a marketeer galore, that he was a person that marketed all of his work. Self-promoter. Every, self-promoter. Every time we, was, we talked to him, uh, he was self-promoting the Last Supper and whatever other work he was doing, at, basically at a Halloween party, believe it or not. But um, the, the question comes in, in his day, did these artists, and uh, whether it be Leonardo or anybody else, did they have to self-promote themselves, uh, or, or how did word get out about these? About you know, in the in the with this, of course, no. Last oh yeah, man. How did it happen? Oh yeah, man. Look, you've hit on the you've hit on the essence of the Renaissance. Listen, there were great sculptors. I mean, there were great. There were Niccolo Giovanni Pisano. There were great. There's endless amount of sculptors before the Renaissance. But the thing is, is that you worked for a king. You worked for an empire. The great thing about Italy, why, why this begins, is that once the Renaissance jumps off, once the recreation of the perfection in proportion that Rome and Greece developed, and they rediscover it in the 1400s, well, Singapore perspective, we can draw mathematically on a two-dimensional plane exactly what we see in three dimensions, height, width, and depth. Well, guys, we can do the naturalism of a human being. We don't have to do this great sort of... International Gothic drapery. You could like make people squint, and you can have actually foreshortening of their hands. And you could twist them and so forth. Once that happens, the cities that own those artists promote them. I mean, you know, you know, Mantua says, "Hey, we got Giulio Romano, we got uh, Alberti, we got everybody here, man." Uh, you know, uh, you know, Rome says we got Michelangelo, Florence says we got Michelangelo, we got the Ninja Turtles, we got the Ninja. Turtles. So the city promotes the guy. And then the guy goes on his own. And, you know, Leonardo starts off with Verrocchio. He's a really good draftsman. He does an enunciation. He's got a pretty good reputation as a, you know, a beginning sculptor. And he promotes himself to the Sforza family in Milan as an engineer. His job application is, look, I can build you stuff, man. I built a crane to put up these columns on top of the drama. I built, like, water supply systems. I built this. I built that. Hire me as an engineer. Hey, by the way, I can also paint. And by the way, I can also do a theme party for you. He does the first one in the Sforzeska Castle, man, in Milan. He does the whole ceiling. They're, they want to have a party. He frescoes the whole thing as like a forest. He's, I could do parties for you. I could do whatever. So, yes, the self-promotion is big. The ego is huge, particularly by the time you meet the 1480s, 1490s, where now the artist is not just the artisan, and he's not just the artist, but he's the star. Right. He's become a star, man. And you got to remember, Michelangelo's a star since he's 12. He's taken from, you know, Lorenzo de' Medici, man. He's an apprentice with uh, Domenico Ruggiero He's considered great as a kid. I mean, he does the Bacchus when he's, what, 20-something years old? Right. Then he does the, 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 you know, he does the, the Pietà in, in, in Rome for uh, this Lefebvre family, man, and... They say, oh, it's a great German statue. Let's go back and sign his name on it. He signed his name on it. Hey, it's not a German guy who did this because Germans are the only people. Burgundian French and Germans were the only people who really who venerated pain, Christ in pain at the time, except for the Franciscans. And so they think it's like, oh, wow, the Germans did this because it's a Pieta. And the Germans are famous for this idea of like venerating Christ dead. And, uh, or it's Burgundian, and he goes back, and he signs his name. Bonarotti, no, man, I did it. I did it. There's no fucking, you know, French guy, German guy did this. I, I, me. 
And yes, Leonardo did the same thing. Leonardo gets a gig with Francois the First. Are you kidding me? The king hires him. He's his own personal dude. Sure. All right. So <laughs> you we bet, were on the. You, you bet if they, if they had a press agent, you know, they would have hired him. See that we 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 got it right. Then I'll have to send you a clip of our uh, <laughs> of our skit. It was actually pretty funny. I'm glad. You got to remember one thing: from fourteen hundred, from fourteen hundred, say the early Renaissance to the high Renaissance, the end of Raffaello, fourteen twenty. They say since the jazz. From that time, this the star is that is made. The star is born. See that. And an international star at that point, I guess, or at least throughout totally the United States, you know. And if you want to hear our show where we visit with Leonardo da Vinci himself, go back to everything old is new again dot biz, everything old is new again dot biz, and take a look at our old shows listed therein, and you'll see that one under the old Halloween show. We'll be back right after this on everything old is new again with Dr. Peter Weller. <laughs> Hey, Doug, it seems like we've done so many shows. What is the actual count? We're at 214 and counting, increasing every week. Wow, that's amazing. Yes. All right, so let's say that I'm a listener, I'm a fan of the show, and I've missed the last 213 shows, <laughs> right? Where can I go to, to hear this stuff? Uh, it's a great question. We have a channel on YouTube. So just go to Everything Old is New Again Radio. Look that up on YouTube. Just throw it into the search engine. You will see us come up and you will see all of those shows listed on YouTube. You can wow. listen anytime. Now, what if I wanted to find you somewhere else, like well, on Facebook? Yeah, we're, we're on, on Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. Facebook also. Just go Everything Old is New Again in the search. You will find us. And we post shows all the time. In fact, every Friday at 5, Eastern Standard Time, we post an old show so you can listen to it on the way home from work. Wow. That's cool. That's new, right? It sure is. Uh, I would suggest you do that. Everything old is new again. Enjoy. And you can find us on the web at everythingoldisnewagain.biz. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. And we're back on Everything Old is New Again with Dr. Peter Weller. I don't want to take up too much of your time, we, 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 and I, we certainly appreciate you, you spending all this time with us. Uh, two final issues that I, that I have here. Uh, we're going to do a show or a series of shows on the movie director and it would be the director, so to speak, in the day. Uh, and we still have some today that, that you would hear a good example of which would be like Alfred Hitchcock. You would hear a Hitchcock movie is coming out. Didn't kind of matter what it was. You were going to go see the movie because of the director. So um, my thought comes in. You're involved in quite a bit of directing now on, on television with uh, Longmire and uh, Y50, The Last Ship, The Strain, uh, MacGyver, Mr. Mercedes, just to name a few. So my first question in that vein would be, what is it about directing that you love and what uh, has influenced you or maybe are there in directors that have influenced you along the way? Well, look, the first thing you got, I, I, I'd recommend it was nominated, I think it was nominated for an Oscar last year. You got to see Five Came Back. It was produced by a friend of mine, Justin Falvey. And that's about the five directors, uh, John Ford, William Wyler, George Stevens, Frank Capra, uh, and, and John Houston who went off to war and came back and didn't ever make a frilly entertainment family movie again. Right. And that's the, what they saw and what they experienced changed them <laughs> into essentially the new adult film, the film 
like we're talking about naturalist theater, right? Um, and you got to see Five Came Back. And all those guys, when when there was a new John Huston movie coming out, people want to see it. When there's a new, you know, a William Wyler movie, he's my favorite director ever. Nobody moved the camera like William Wyler. Uh, you know, uh, Cap, Capra. So, yeah, the director was really, there was, all, there was a day of an auteur. And I think that went on all the way up into uh, 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 the 70s easily. I think the 80s is sort of to, to, to uh, diminish right. with the idea of marketing. And the movie became more about the marketing thing. Um, now, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. What got me into directing was watching movies. I always wanted to direct more than act. Uh, I never really thought I had the... Um, I, I didn't have the... Uh, what the uh, self-confidence as a director it was only like when I directed a few things in college and something in American Academy and then when I just really threw my hat into the ring and got this Showtime money to direct a short that I really go for it and then thanks to Tom Fontana and and and, uh, uh, and, uh, and Homicide you know I direct, got to direct television and directing television changed me and by the way I just want to say this I did a thing for Barry Levinson and Tom Fontana called Hate Crimes, which was arguably the very first ever on on uh, network television story about gay killing, about gay bashing. And it was brilliant. It won a Nancy Susan Reynolds Award for Civil Rights. Now I'm going to, on, on, on Monday, I'm going to do Hawaii Five-0. And Peter Lankoff has given, CBS have given me this episode about... Um, gay bashing hmm. about gender bashing and also about parent parent bashing of gay children you know of guilt and so forth I'm honored to do it I'm honored to do it you can't even call CBS Johnny come lately to it but that's why I'd like to direct because every once in a while you get something that speaks to what we were just talking about before everything old is new uh, you can't imagine that in this day and age, as we just talked about feminism and gender rights in the 60s, 70s, that there would still be something called, we, we have to kill gays? Right, right. I mean, how can we think of that? And kudos to Y50 and CBS for addressing it and going, yeah, hey man, Weller, you might have done that 23 years ago on, you know, on, uh, on homicide, but, uh, but guess what? It's still living and breathing, man, so we're going to do it again. And um, that's why I like to direct, man, because I'd rather tell the story than perform in it. Don't get me wrong, I love performing. And by the way, I'm going to do a three-episode um, three arc on MacGyver as a super MacGyver guy that out MacGyver's MacGyver. <laughs> it was an idea that Lucas Till and I, when I was directing MacGyver, he said, why don't you act with this? I'd love to. They developed something groovy. He says, what about a MacGyver guy? I said, what about a guy that out MacGyver's you? And so I, we threw that, at, both of us threw that at Lenkoff, and Lenkoff developed CBS, and so I'm going to be doing that. And that's acting. So I love acting. But I get to tell the story, man. I get to, you know, and the great thing about ep good episodic television, great episodic television, or great serialized television, you know, whether you're doing the Mayans or, the, or Sons of Anarchy, The Strain, what have you, FX, CBS, whatever, is that I get to mount up and attempt to hit a home run every three or four weeks.
That's terrific. I mean, and you do, and uh, I'm happy. I'm looking forward to seeing that. I know you'll do justice to that. I have one suggestion, if I might be so bold. Uh, a clip here, again, from Fringe. We're on this, but uh, it's a different episode, a very short clip, and then I want to c- talk about the topic, and I think that this is something that hasn't been approached by uh, uh, many stories that have been told too much about this topic, and I think it's, uh, it's due. We'll hear. I want to give you your life back. As a father, how could I not do that for you? What I said in the tape about stealing time with you, I meant it. I would trade it for the world. You are my favorite thing, Peter. My very favorite thing. Now, sort of obscure for those listening and not fans of Fringe, but in some, that's a father and, and a son, obviously, and a father expressing, uh, as we spoke about a little bit before, but you know, in modern day times, expressing his feelings clearly to him and about his son. Um, and so I'm just thinking to myself, as I'm preparing for this interview and going through uh, different themes and all, and I, I don't see that, maybe I'm wrong, all that much father son daughter uh you know mom uh, relationships explored uh, all that much in television these days am i wrong uh, and or is it is it something you think is is uh, is worthwhile or has it been fleshed out I, too I, much? oh look man i think it's right now you know when you when you got a kid and we all get kids that this is the only thing really worthwhile right. you know i mean my wife is away cuz she's a public speaker for um uh, Asian companies like Sanyo and Samsung and so forth, and Nitto Tires in Japan and so forth. And she's a she puts together productions at, at trade shows at big conventions, and she still hangs on to a couple of one in, in Vegas. So it's this week is with my kid, uh, you know, and it's me and him, and we get to do flatulent contests, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, walk around in her underwear, and I give him extra time on the iPad if he gets his homework done. And there's a discipline that mom has that I kind of like fudge. <laughs> but that dynamic, I mean, I don't know what's more important. I, I just don't know. And, yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about doing this, uh, not, not to bring it back to this Hawaii Five-O episode, but right. I was talking about education and so forth, is that there's a dilemma this whole thing starts off with this with this girl who, a guy gets killed and it turns out to be an LGBTQ counselor and one of his clients is this girl who's like 16. And she's going to turn 17, and the parents want to put her in one of those uh, reform places, man. They think that, you know, we can change her, that you know, her wires were mixed, that this is, you know, uh, a fixable deal, that she's gay. And um, I, I, I'm so honored to do it, because they don't make the parents wrong. They just sort of stand for the choice of the human, of the human being. And uh, and any of that stuff that hits the dynamic of a kid, of a parent and a kid, I think that's the only drama, man. I, I think it's the only drama. Really. I agree. All the stuff, all all the rest of the stuff is entertainment. But um, yeah, we can talk about the future of the world and whether the republic's going to die. <laughs> but if you bring it all back home, it's really how do you like in the day and age give your kid a moral code and still let him keep his own identity you know a little bit of the rebel in him man uh, man that's the only challenge 
I agree, and that's a, a great uh, note to to end on, and I, I appreciate your time, uh, Dr. Well, other than to say that uh, we would be happy to have you back again sometime when time permits, and I'm looking forward to seeing you on MacGyver coming up, those three episodes on Forever uh, uh, with on Amazon Prime, and uh, of course as a director of the upcoming Hawaii Five-0, and I'm sure there are other projects that are that are going to be uh, before us, uh, and, and I'm really enjoying, uh, enjoyed spending some time with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, hey, listen, David, i got to say, I was interviewed on NPR by Scott Simon, another hero, but you guys are my new heroes, and I easily include you into the Scott Simon milieu of brilliant guys on radio. Oh, man. wow, so, thank you. Thank you very much, and, and you could also put us in the same sentence as Michelangelo's we did before. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least he would Absolutely. admire us as well, right, for our thought, I'm kidding, but thank you so much, and uh, and, and uh, we'll be back right, uh, next week to talk all things pop culture, then old is new again, uh, and and, uh, and, and Dr. Well, if you could hang on just one second, we'll be right back right after this. David? Sure. All right, so Doug, people have been saying, hey, I could find you guys on YouTube. You have your own YouTube channel. I can find you on Facebook. But what about other social media? Do you exist anywhere else in the social media universe? Yes, we do. We're on Instagram and we're on Twitter. The same thing. You go at E-O-N-A show. That's everything old is new again. The initials, right? So it's E-O-N-A show. And that's it, at E-O-N-A show. you got Instagram, Twitter, and I'll tell you, we post pictures, behind-the-scenes stuff, trivia questions, contests, notes about the show, so you have a lot of fun. Subscribe to us, friend us on Facebook if you can, and, and subscribe to the YouTube, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. That's fun. I'm going to even start doing that. Ah, it might be worth your while. You can it's actually know what we're going to do next week. <laughs> Good. <laughs> at E-O-N-A show. That's at E-O-N-A show. You've been listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's pop culture entertainment talk show. Find us on the web at everythingoldisnewagain.biz. That's dot biz. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. Bye.